we want those animals that we're raising for those purposes to have a good life. And part of that good life includes giving them a good death. So the first is making sure we're euthanizing at an appropriate time. We're not waiting too long. But then the second piece is that we're choosing a method of euthanasia that's effective for that specific animal. And so then we provide a good death for the animal because it's an effective method. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry. One that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. DSM Furminish. You can combat mycotoxins in your feed with Fumezyme from DSM Furminish. Fumezyme is the only FDA-approved enzyme to degrade fumonisins. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutritional program innovation. Cloud Farms, swine management to the next level. Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. Hello, and welcome to our latest edition of Swine Ed Podcast. Um, I'm Jerry Purvis, your host, and today we're very lucky to have uh, Carly Anderson. Uh, Carly is a PhD candidate at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln, uh, graduate uh, and a graduate research assistant, and also an affiliate of the Animal Welfare Lab at the University of Wisconsin in River Falls. Uh, Carly, uh, welcome and uh, glad to have you today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Very good. Well, um, if you take a few moments uh, and just tell us a little bit about about yourself and uh, how you got to today. Sure. So I completed my undergraduate in animal science at the University of Wisconsin River Falls, and then from there went on to do my master's at the University of Minnesota College of Veterinary Medicine. And I'm currently a PhD student at the University of Nebraska Lincoln, and throughout my undergraduate master's and PhD work, my research has focused primarily on captive bull stunning and euthanasia for pigs. Eastman serves veterinarians and nutritionists in agrochemical and animal health industries by helping them select, evaluate, and implement innovative nutritional programs. Eastman works with your team to customize your gut health approach in feed and water. Eastman's approach addresses nutritional and bacterial challenges and finds new ingredient preservation and hygiene solutions. Explore ways to accelerate and innovate your programs. Contact the Animal Nutrition Team at Eastman.com. Very good, very good. You know, as a producer, I have to admit that I'm pretty ignorant. Uh, you know, we, we work on uh, getting animals up to, to market, and uh, once we get them to market, you know, we kind of uh, don't think about what happens after that. But uh, maybe uh, it, it'd be good just to kind of Tell us a little bit about that process that, that occurs at plants and the snooping process. Yeah, so two things I guess I want to point out is first is that when we're talking about euthanasia and stunning, they're similar, but there's two different goals. When in stunning, we want to render the animal insensible, but death is ultimately facilitated by the process of bleeding that animal out. So the method doesn't necessarily need to kill the animal. It just needs to make sure the animal's unconscious long enough for that bleed-out procedure to occur. But when we're talking about euthanasia on-farm, or if an animal makes it to the slaughter plant but isn't ambulatory or is deemed unfit for slaughter, um, then we want to make sure we make that animal unconscious 
and cause death. So generally speaking, when we're talking about death in this context, death is defined by the stop of all respiratory or breathing activity as well as heartbeat. Very good. And so, yeah, so two things, uh, and, and he's working on a farm. This is one area that uh, I know produce a lot of producers like myself. Uh, I participate in this, and it's one of the dreaded, you know, you, you work and spend your time and, and you take care of these animals, and for whatever reason, that animal, you know, has to be euthanized, and uh, it's a hard thing to do. I, I had to uh, send my wife. I had a lab for about 13 years, and uh, I had to send my lab, my wife, to the to the vet. I just couldn't do it. So I have I have a trouble with, with that, but – uh, so maybe just kind of differentiate, um, you've been working on, uh, or let's just start euthanasia on a farm. So what, what are the things you've been working on um, in your research to, to help uh, make that process a lot better? Sure. So my research on euthanasia has been focused on use of captive bolts. And so the first thing there is when most people think of a captive bolt, I think they think of the big air-powered captive bolt that you see in like large bee slaughter establishments. But that's not what we're talking about with on-farm euthanasia for pigs. We're usually talking about a handheld device that's fired by a powder cartridge similar to what you would use in a gun. And then the bolt retracts from that device, goes into the pig's head, and it causes damage to the brain, both by bone that it chips away from the skull and then the bolt going into the brain itself. And essentially we're causing death by catastrophic brain damage. Um, that's probably our most common method of on-farm euthanasia for pigs, especially grow finish and market pigs. Um, and we see that over a firearm or gunshot use because it's safer for everyone involved. There's not a flying projectile that could harm other animals or if there's other people in the building. And we also see there's less legal loopholes to jump through and legal problems with using a captive bolt as well. And so what we've looked at specifically is the tissue thicknesses at the common frontal place, which for market pigs is an inch above the top of the eye. And for more mature sows and boars is about an inch and a half to two inches above the top of the eyes. And then looking at some alternative placements, looking behind the ear directed toward the opposite eye, as well as on the side of the head between the eye and the ear. And essentially what we found through all of that research with market hogs, um, mature sows and boars, is that the frontal placement, even though there's a lot of tissue thickness there, especially as the age in their sinus cavities expand, is still the least total tissue for that bolt to travel through in order to reach the brain and has a higher prevalence of bolt, the bolt path being within the plane of the brain. So essentially a higher probability that the bolt will also be placed so that it's going to fit the brain compared to the other two. Very good. So, so I guess um, a question, maybe a lot of people in the audience, what what led to maybe the predominant use of? And you mentioned safety, obviously safety for the workers at the at the farms. But what are what are some other advantages of, of the captive boat uh, for euthanasia? Sure. So, I think safety is a really big one because we don't have to worry about life projectiles. So, if we're thinking about mechanical methods, we have gunshot, firearm, and captive bolt. So with those two, it's there's no flying projectile. Um, if we think about other methods that are used as far as safety goes, electrical, so electrocution could be used, but then you also have to make sure you have a reliable power source, which isn't always possible. And then do you have a backup generator if the power source goes out? Um, but then also 
you're using electricity in a barn with lots of other animals and potentially more than one person. And so while cleaning is really important with both, I think there's more risk to the human operator in a barn setting with electrocution than there is with a captive bolt. And then we use methods like that over something like Burbix with overdose, which you see with companion animals because we have to dispose of the carcasses and those leave residues and there's all sorts of related issues with that. Right. You know, and, and as I said, it's, it's a tough uh, thing you have to, when you have to euthanize an animal, it, it's pretty, pretty tough to do that for myself. Uh, and I've seen those, 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 um, those captain, you know, we've used that in our, our facility. So um, just thinking about uh, euthanasia in general, you know, what are the, obviously what are the, what should, what are the reasons why, you know, this is important? Sure. So I think there's kind of two pieces. The first is that it's important because if we're raising animals for food and at some point they become sick or injured and we know that they're not going to make it to that end goal or if, say, they're breeding sow, for whatever reason, she becomes lame or has a prolapse that's severe and she doesn't have a good chance of recovery. We want those animals that we're raising for those purposes to have a good life. And part of that good life includes giving them a good death. So the first is making sure we're euthanizing at an appropriate time. We're not waiting too long. But then the second piece is that we're choosing a method of euthanasia that's effective for that specific animal. And so then we provide a good death for the animal because it's an effective method. But then that's also when it's an effective method that's worked well, it's easier on the person who has to apply that procedure too. Because like you've mentioned, I don't think there's anyone that likes to routing euthanize pigs. But if you know that the method you're doing is giving that pig death, I think you can sleep a lot better at night knowing that than having to think, oh, I wish I could have done this different. But the tools I had didn't allow me to do it differently. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so... As uh, as we think about the, the bolt gun, uh, how easy is that uh, to operate? And is there, you know, is there some margin for error? It seems like uh, do you have to hit a certain spot uh, to, for that to be effective, or you know, how easy is it for a person to mess that up? I guess is my question. Yeah, I would say that we don't necessarily have a quantification of how hard or easy it is for a person. To um, using the captive bolt devices themselves, I would say, is pretty straightforward. Um, it's important to have training and know how to use it as well as how to place it. But I think most people, once they've gone through that training process, if they're someone who feels comfortable with the process of euthanasia, they feel pretty comfortable with using the captive bolt. Um, as far as the margin for error, pigs have a relatively small brain compared to the size of their head. If we compare them to say cattle, um, so that with pigs, you might have less margin for error than you do with cattle. But where we place that captive bolt on the pig's head is really aiming for a small part of the brain called the thalamus. And that's what some studies in other areas, like looking at rhesus macaque and what causes unconsciousness and consciousness have identified as being really important. So that is about the size of a nickel. Um, but the brain is a lot bigger than that. And we know that if we hit the brain and cause physical damage, that's good. But we might also cause insensibility if we hit the brain in another spot. And there's also concussive forces at play. So to be completely honest, I don't think we know exactly what that margin for error is. But we want to be within that 
portion of the salt that we're going to hit the brain with. Right. And, you know, you mentioned you were a, um, you're an affiliate of an animal welfare lab there at uh, University of Wisconsin in uh, River River Falls. Uh, tell me a little bit about that training. Uh, do you, who do you bring in to, to, that comes in for training? Sure. So with my work at Dr. Repulse Animal Welfare Lab, we recently established the Humane Animal Institute, and that's a series of workshops that's a, intended for slaughter establishment personnel. And so right now there's two workshops. The first is focused on building a robust systematic approach to humane handling. So that really focuses on building SOPs and creating logs specific to a given slaughter plant so that they can have what the USDA classifies as a robust systematic approach. Um, the second workshop is focused on training stunner operators on stunning placement and equipment maintenance. So with that, we cover both electrical and um, captive bolt stunning. And it's really aimed at getting slaughter plant people who are the ones stunning training in a low stress setting where they don't have the USDA looking over their shoulder. And it's an environment where it's okay to make mistakes on the placement because there's not a live animal life at stake. So, so I guess we're moving in uh, kind of talking a little bit about processing plants, which, uh, and I have to admit, you know, it's been probably 20 plus years. I was in a plant one time and uh, I'm pretty naive. I can't even remember much about the, the trip, but uh you know, maybe talk a little bit about, I'm sure some of our viewers are as naive as, as I am. What, what are some of the processes for stunning that go on in plants across the United States? Sure. So the first thing I want to point out is that in all federally inspected plants, it's usually required that animals are rendered unconscious with a single stun. And so in the U.S. for hogs, we essentially see three methods of inducing that unconsciousness. The first would be our mechanical methods of after bolt and gunshot. I would say as far as use in plants go, those are pretty small when it comes to pigs. We definitely see them, but they're a minority. And then we have electrical stunning, which you would see some in your large sow and door plants and in a lot of smaller slaughter establishments. So I would say probably the majority of plants that take in pigs use electrical stunning, but the majority of Pigs in the United States are rendered unconscious by carbon monoxide. That's what our big market plants are using. So, how is that? Uh, you know, I never thought about that. Uh, so, you said car is that carbon dioxide? Yep. Yep. And how does that work? Uh, you know, and why is that maybe predominantly what what the predominant way uh, animals are stunned in the U.S. Sure. So, carbon dioxide. Using it with pigs essentially induces death by hypoxia. So there's not enough oxygen in the animal's body anymore to maintain homeostasis and for the body to function as it should. So I think the probably the primary reason we see that used is because it eliminates the need to handle pigs as individuals leading up to restraint. So pigs are moved as a group, a smallish group of like five to seven animals probably, into a gondola that then cycles them down through carbon dioxide exposure and then they're um, essentially put onto a conveyor belt where they're shackled and hoisted and so it takes two things pigs are handled as group which we know is easier for them and 
easier on the people who have to handle them than trying to isolate them into a single file line. And it also removes the person having to apply the process that's directly apply the process that's making them unconscious, like you would see with electrical or captive bolt. Yeah, yeah. That'd be for somebody like me, I guess, kind of remove a little bit from what you're doing every day. It'd be a tough job to, you know, be the person doing that every day, I would think. But but a little bit about, um, you know, I never thought about that. Uh, obviously, the training is important uh, so that they do it properly. But uh, what are the consequences if that person, you mentioned, you know, they're working at the plant. Uh, let's suppose something goes haywire and, and, and you've got a problem. How does that, how does that affect that plant? Sure. So with any stunning method that you're using, the, the legal requirement is 100% efficacy. So every single animal is rendered insensible with one application every time. Um, with that, the USDA enforces that. So if you miss a stun, whatever the method might be, they can put a retain tag on the restrainer or the stunner itself. And essentially production stops up to that point. So say you're loading hogs into a V restrainer for electrical stunning, the V restrainer might get tagged and then no more hogs can go through that V restrainer forward. You can continue to process the product that's already through the V restrainer. So any animals that have already been stunned essentially and those carcasses and everything as far as further fabrication goes can continue, but you're essentially stopping production for a while, which is a cost to the plant. And then it also can create animal welfare challenges because now you have pigs that are on site and can't be watered, but you also have truckloads of pigs that are coming in and you might not have appropriate holding capacity and animals can only be on trucks for so long. So it creates a lot of challenges for a lot of different reasons. Wow. I, you know, I never thought of being, uh, that person has a stressful job for sure. I mean, he, he's got to be 100% uh, all the time. And uh, basically, I guess what you're saying, he could, you know, if he misses one, they, they could shut down that plant. And, uh, and then you got all, then you've got a, a domino effect of other animal welfare issues. Yeah. So, so how do you, uh, what's usually, and I know you mentioned, uh, we've mentioned previously, talked uh, talk previously, and, and you're a certified auditor. Is that correct? Yes. So I'm, the Professional Animal Auditor Certification Organization, I'm a certified meat plant auditor. So that certification process includes like a two, two and a half day class where you walk through the North American Meat Institute's audit and audit guidelines. And then what that process is, you take an exam to make sure, yeah, you understand what the audit is and how to use the tool. And then you go through three shadow audits. So essentially you're doing the audit alongside someone who's already certified. So that way you can understand how it actually works in a plant because it's very different to understand what the book says and sit at a desk and say, yeah, this happens. And to be the person who's saying, yeah, that was an animal that fell or yeah, that was an animal that slipped. Cause that's one thing that that audit is really clear about is a slip means part of the animal's body, like their brisket. If we're talking about cattle hit the floor where slip might just mean they go down a little. And the difference between those is that a fall is a core criteria. So you have a certain percentage. And if you don't meet that certain percentage, you fail the audit, where a slip is considered a secondary criteria. And it's more something that's just talked about. 
So what? So in these audits, what do you what do you find where you have problems? What what is generally the the problem? Is it physical? Uh, the mechanical? Uh, like I said, the people people error or, or mechanical error? I think it depends a lot on the specific plant you're at. So and be honest, the group of animals you have on a day combined with the people that are working on a given day and on a given shift contribute a lot. Um, we have to think about how the animals are handled. Is the stun applied correctly? Is the flooring in the plant appropriate for those animals? Because if it's grooved flooring or concrete stamped, over time those things get worn. Um, are the handlers handling the animals appropriately? So if we're thinking about electric produce, we have to keep that below a certain percentage. And if you apply it to certain areas, like you can't apply it to the face or um, sensitive areas, if you do that, then we just active abuse. So they're really prescriptive in what's a problem. And then you have to solve the problem when you see it. So you don't just record what you saw and then at two hours later go up to the manager's office and say, these were all the problems. You call the problem as you see it to the plant personnel that's taking you around the plant while you do your audit so that it's clear what you saw. And if you disagree, ultimately, as the auditor, you usually have the say on what you saw. But that way, you're still, there's not any surprises at the end of the day with what you saw. Right. So what were the steps uh, to become an auditor? Did you uh, pretty lengthy process? Yeah, so you have to have qualifications. I don't recall exactly what they are. It's a certain number of years of experience and education counts toward those years of experience, which is nice. Um, and then you register for the class. Like I said, it's about a two and a half day class, depending on exactly when and where and how you do it. And those classes include some videos on like how you recognize effective stems, how you recognize kinds of unconsciousness. So for example, they'll walk through and teach you how to how to look for corneal reflex because that's one thing we look for to make sure that if you go to touch the eye of an animal, especially with a mechanical stun, you shouldn't see that eye close at all. Um, they teach you to, how to look for things like rhythmic breathing, um, which is really defined as two inhale exhale cycles. And that's especially important with pigs because we see something called agonal gasping where once they're stunned, they'll stiffen and they'll kind of like, it almost looks like they're exhaling, but it's just the release of air from the lungs, but there's no inhale to it. So distinguishing between what that agonal gas that we expect to see in some proportion of pigs versus actual breathing that's indicative of the animal still conscious. And then once you go through the training, the training class, you take the exam, and then within a year of passing that exam, you have to complete three shadow audits. With a new plant, you have to do at least two species. And that can be cattle, pigs, lamb are the main ones, but it could be something else as well. Yeah. So so you go and, and you go to these plants and you, you do audit and you said that most of the time, I mean, there's a lot of leeway. You can, you know, you try to, try to help them out as you go, but, uh, you know, uh, at the end of the day, you're just there. You're trying to help those people, and uh, sometimes I guess auditors are always thought we're always thought the bad guys. Sometimes I guess, but uh, but it's all you know. You're trying to help 
Uh, and I think everybody, uh, we want these animals to be as, as uh, painless, let that process be as painless and, and suffer at least amount as, as, as possible. So I have to ask you, Carl, how did you, uh, uh, it seems like a, to- a topic, you know, your research is something, uh, did you ever think that you would be doing uh, studying this area? And how did you get into in this area? Yeah, I definitely did not think I would always be studying this area. So I started my undergraduate degree at UW-River Falls as a pre-vet companion animal student. And then for our animal science major here at UW-River Falls, an animal welfare class is required. And at that time, it was taught just by Dr. Kurt Vogel. I really enjoyed the class, got interested in it, so I TA'd for it the next semester. And then I took the advanced animal welfare class and competed on the welfare judging team. And kind of through that combination of experiences, got really interested in animal welfare and decided that maybe instead of going to vet school and becoming a vet, I wanted to pursue graduate programs related to animal welfare. And so with that, I wanted to get some undergraduate research experience to make sure that, yeah, I like the research and everything that goes with research writing and stats. Um, So I worked on an undergraduate research project with another student and Dr. Vogel, and that was focused on looking at tissue thicknesses from the frontal and the behind ear placement for market hogs using cadaver heads. And then from there, I've kind of continued that work for my master's. I looked at the tissue thicknesses with the frontal, temporal, and behind ear placement for sows and boars that weigh over 200 kilograms or 440 pounds live weight. And then for my PhD work, I've expanded that work to this population of pigs between 120 kilograms and like you them with it, like pigs to sows and boars that weigh up to that you know, 140 pounds because there isn't any literature on those animals. And then Emma Hamilton, an undergraduate student that I've worked with a lot, he recently published a paper looking at the frontal placement and tissue differences between market arrows that are physically castrated, so our typical market hog, and then immunocastrated boars as well. Wow. So, uh, yeah, interesting path. Seems like, uh, you know, a lot of times our, our pathways can start just on one class, or was it a professor, or just the, just the topic intrigued you uh, that sparked the interest? I think it's yeah, yeah. It, it, it's uh, it's it's crazy how you know the how our professors can have such an impact on our you know our, our career pathways sometimes. And, and you think about the good professors and and the way they presented the information in the class and the you know can can have a really big impact. So it sounds like it. Now, as far as animal welfare, uh, do you have any other? Um, areas of welfare that you have interest that, that possibly you'd like to look into research? Yes. So most of my interests are related around the death rate of animal welfare, whether that's stunning or on-farm euthanasia. But to be completely honest, pretty much all of animal welfare is interesting to me. That's just the space where I've kind of been able to work and I've really enjoyed it. And there's been, there's a lot of opportunity for research in that space. Um, but Related to the work we've talked about, um, I've also been involved with work assessing humane handling enforcement actions that are issued by the USDA FSIS. So those are those enforcement actions that result from a missed or an egregious handling incident at a slaughter plant. 
and then get shut down for a period of time. And so what we've done with those is really trying to understand which species are involved. And to that extent, we see that cattle and pigs make up the majority of enforcement actions. And when we think about total slaughter volume, that makes a lot of sense because in the United States, we slaughter more beef and pigs than we do save sheep and goat. Um, and then also looking at what the causes of those are. So over the years, we've seen that stunning is the most common cause for those enforcement actions. And then within stunning, looking at the type of stun, what the root cause of that failed stun might be. Yeah. And, and so just thinking, uh, just thinking, thinking about, you know, what producer are, are some areas uh, that, that as far as handling or, or some things that producers can do to make that process easier and more efficient. Uh, you know, as we maybe we load the pigs to market or uh, as they're handled before they're loaded on the truck before they get to the plant. There's, are there some things that we can do that maybe can, can make that process better? I think the biggest thing being to make sure that pigs that are put on the truck to go to a plant are really fit for transport and will be able to get off the trailer at the plant and walk. So I think one thing that people don't always realize is that just because an animal can get off, get onto a trailer at the farm, doesn't mean that that animal can get off the trailer and then make it from where they get off the trailer to where they go to restraint before stunning at the plant, because animals have to be able to walk to restraint. Um, I think we definitely see some issues with market hogs where they're not fit for transport and sometimes they're shipped. But I think that's a bigger problem with cull sows and boars, where they maybe should have been shipped sooner or on-farm euthanasia would have been a better choice for them. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's a good point. You know, sometimes uh, as producers, we wait too late, you know, and the animal is, is now not even fit to, to make the, you know, the travel to the to the plant. So being able to have some, some uh, inference there about when to, to ship that for sure can be being pretty important as well. I can see that. So, well, um, so um, what do you think, you know, uh, as technology is really changing fast and, and, and the adoption, particularly in the in our industry, is sometimes slow, but what do you think are maybe some technologies that uh, maybe are coming down the road that, that uh, plants and even farms may be, be using? You got any you crystal ball there trying to... <laughs> Picture what you think, uh, just in your opinion. You know, what are some 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 areas maybe that uh, that might be used in the future? I'm not too certain. So I work pretty, I wouldn't say far removed, but it's not close to technology uses usage. I think one thing that would be helpful is being maybe more virtual reality type training for other operators or experiences where we can use like model pigs. So one thing we do in the Humane Handling Institute trainings is we have some model heads that are made by a company in Canada. We have like photo brains and plant center operators can practice stunning on those and identifying location. Maybe if there was a way to attach those so they were moving, because right now they're stationary. And we all know that when it's time to stun an animal or euthanize an animal, that their head very well may or may not be stationary. And so I think adding something like that is a training step. So you start with the stationary head, and then the next step is to go to this still 
not a live animal head, still a model, not even a cadaver head, but it's moving now. So you have yeah. half the of More head. realistic. Yeah. 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 I can see that. Uh, so better, better model, better, more realistic models to practice on. Because like you said, it's, it, I mean, it's a job that you're, you're expecting to be perfect when you start uh, and get better. <laughs> so that, that's a lot of stress. Yeah. You, is there a lot of turnover in these plants? Uh, people are running those the yeah. process. There's, I would say in plants, I don't know, there's a pretty high turnover. And that, I think part of the challenge too is you, you have high turnover and stunning isn't something that anyone is willing to do. And it's probably not a job that just anyone should do either. I mean, you want to have a person who's detail oriented and understands the magnitude of what they're doing, but also someone who can remove themselves enough that they're okay at the end of the day, I think. Um, and so I think even though plants have high turnover, the stunner operator in particular is not necessarily a job where we want to see high turnover. Yeah. Yeah. I, like I said, I would, that would be the last place I'd want to work in a plant. Just, uh, just doing that every day, but it's, it's a thankless job I and mean, it's a very important job. And, uh, so it's, uh, imperative that somebody knows what they're doing and, you know, for the animal's sake, for the people, you know, the plant's sake, just being able to to, to implement this function that's uh, important. So, very good. You know, I'm glad some. Uh, I'm sure there's not been a lot of research in this area, but it's it's an important area. And I think, you know, going forward, uh, consumers are really, uh, and, and they should be, are really pressing us on how we treat our animals. And uh, you know, we want to treat our animals. The best productive animals are animals that are well treated. So most most all producers want to treat their animals well. But you know, sure, I think we can learn a lot about animal behavior and, and trying to understand, you know, where there is areas where we can make their life easier, you know, with every reason. And so I think that's uh that's something that's gonna be coming down the it's it's, it's here and uh we're gonna try to, you know. It's a topic that hadn't been talked about, honestly. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of research opportunity for sure to learn more about these animals and how how to how to better you know make their life easier uh, and uh, on the farm. So it's very good. It's time for our famous three. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Feedflow. Feed is too expensive to ignore. Take control with Feedflow. Adiseo provides programs and services to help producers achieve their targets in high-quality, safe, and sustainable way. AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. AccuFast, the best way to predict the future is to create it. Start creating your future today at AccuFastSwine.com. Well, we're uh, drawing nigh here to our end, and... Uh Gotta ask you three questions. We always ask the, the end. Uh, the first question is who, uh, what is your favorite resource? Um, you think about, it didn't have to be about, uh, you probably read a lot of books about uh, or studied uh, uh, euthanasia, but uh, what, what are some books that, you know, or resources, your favorite? I personally really like Google Scholar. So it's a resource that anyone can use. You can just type scholar into Google and then anything you search will only give you 
like scientific literature or sometimes you'll get laws in there as a result. So if you're trying to find out, if you're a producer who wants to know what the newest data on X, Y, or Z is, it's a really great way to be able to quickly get to that information. And a lot of times once you have the paper, even if you get there, you might not totally know what the best new practices or if the old practice is still as good based on that paper, but at least it gives you some information. And then there's always a corresponding author on the paper that you can reach out to and contact for more information or reach out to maybe your vet and they can provide some additional information or another producer, your nutritionist or whatever. Right. Yeah. It's uh, that's a good, good point. Uh, it's amazing. You're not as old as I am, but uh, I can remember, I mean, to go find it, you're literally up at your fingers. You want to find the answer to a question or find a, you know, a paper or something about something. Uh, I mean, literally in seconds, you, you've got that paper. So uh, where we had, you know, before we had to go to the library and, and dig everything out. And and uh, I can remember microfish. You probably never, don't even know what that is. But uh, <laughs> we used to have these little, uh, it, it was a uh, little micro thin papers. You put it in there and look at it. So I'm dating myself. I'm old. But uh but yeah, it's, it, that's a good resource. That's that's uh, uh, something probably use every day, probably or most. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, next, what what would who would you say was your most uh, biggest influencer in your career? And it can be academically or uh, professor or you know uh, uh, a person non academic that uh, had the most impact on you to get you uh, to where you are today? Sure. I would say probably Dr. Kurt. He's the professor that taught that animal science, animal welfare class that I took as an undergraduate. And I continued to work with him through the rest of my undergraduate and graduate training. And so I don't think I would know as much or be the scientist or person I am today without having spent as much time with him as I have. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, professors, uh, good teachers uh, are worth the weight and gold. And it's, it's just amazing uh, how they can bring something alive and, and uh, really, really put us down pathways in our careers. So very good. Uh, and, and last, um, what would you uh, say are characteristics or traits that make successful people, let's say researchers, what are some traits that uh, you find uh, consistent with six people that are successful, successful researchers. Sure. I think probably the biggest one that comes to mind is like a strong sense of curiosity. So I think just being open to asking questions and really kind of that mentality that no question is a stupid question because there's a lot of areas where something might have been done the same way forever, but we don't have data to support why it's been done that way or why it hasn't been done another way. So asking questions. And then I think being patient is also really important. That one's probably a little harder, but, you know, it's important to be patient and make sure you have good, robust data, even when that might not be as quick to give a reward or recognition. Yeah, very good. I mean, that's, those are good uh, words to live by for sure. Uh, you, you know, we're all, uh, when you got a question and, you, and uh, you're always looking for solutions, you know, and there's more questions than there are answers for sure. And, and many times we get, more we get into it, the more we figure out we don't know. 
so just 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 keeps uh, but just keep driving every day. Very good uh, point there. Uh, but uh, and and so yeah, uh, it sounds like uh, you know you you uh, still still in that inquisitive mo- mode and, and still looking for for answers and. And where do you, as you say it, said before, you think uh, it's hard to say where, you know, if, the, if things will change with the way we process animals, but uh, are we just going to, you know, maybe just keep perfecting what we're doing? And you think that's the pathway? Yeah. So there's been research into some new ways. So, um, especially when we think about what's been done on the depopulation side with some of the different foam methods. Um, I don't know that those we'll see make it into the slaughter realm of things, but then looking with carbon dioxide, sometimes adding another gas or replacing it with something else. Um, we've definitely seen different things tried. I think there's a lot of research to continue to be done into methods. But I think really the important thing when thinking about all of that research is is what we're doing going to improve either the animal's welfare and or the worker's welfare? And if the answer to either of those questions is no, then it's probably not something worth exploring. Right, right. Very good. Well, I'm glad uh, I'm glad somebody's taking up this. Uh, and I can assure you I won't be the stunner. <laughs> but uh, it, it's uh, it's a thankless job and, and – uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad we have people that are that are working on that, and uh, for the animal's sake, you know that, that we're treating all animals as as uh, humanely uh, treated as humanely as possible. So, very good. Well, uh, I appreciate you coming uh, to our podcast today, and I look forward to uh, more hearing more research and uh, more good things. So, very good. Thanks. Thanks for having. Yep. Well, you have a good day. You too. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wise Minutes, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time-consuming and requires technical know-how, but don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.